0: The trailer for Furiosa came out a couple of days ago from when we're recording this, and I didn't know it was due to come out. It just dropped kind of unexpectedly, but uh, we knew that the movie was scheduled for 2024, so I guess it was just a matter of time before they started teasing us. Um, but I was very amped going into the trailer, of course, being such a fan of Fury Road and the and the franchise, uh-oh, I sense a but. But <laughs> <laughs> I I got to say there were moments in the trailer that gave me some pause. I yes. I was uh, looking at kind of the, the VFX shots. There was one where Chris Hemsworth, who seems to be playing like a villain or maybe like a, an ambiguous character who's... You know, not, sometimes an ally, sometimes an opponent of Furiosa. Um, he's, like, getting swept off of a some high place by a bunch of bullets or something. And that shot looked really... The VFX looked unfinished. Like, everything was really sharp and really saturated in a way that seemed too real. Uh, almost like a video game cutscene. And it reminded me of some of the stuff that I'd seen in, like, the Hobbit movies. Um, and not in a good way. So... I was like, huh. And then a few more moments like that were peppered throughout the trailer. And I was thinking, "Mm, okay, weird, interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw 3000 Years of Longing, but uh, it it felt like, you know, that was George Miller's last film. And it reminded me of the VFX shots in that where you could tell that there was a lower budget and it started to. You know, some of the seams were visible and I was I was getting a little concerned. Uh, how did you feel when you saw the trailer?
1: I, too, thought the color grading was really vivid, so vivid that it didn't feel natural. But I, I do feel like when's the last time you saw Fury Road? A couple of years ago. OK, so there's a couple scenes in there for sure. I think there were some color grading in there. Yeah, um, but I'm with you. Um, It didn't look practical. I don't blame George Miller considering how difficult production was on Fury Road. So I imagine he wanted to avoid the headache. Um, VFX obviously saves a lot of money and time. But I'm with you. It looks a little too artificial in certain points. It looks like a lot of it was green screen. It looks like they plopped Thor into this world and just made him a little more demented. Yes. I, I hate the fact that Chris Hemsworth is wearing a red cape in this because it reminds me too much of Thor. Yeah. I can't unsee Thor. Yeah. And the entire time I'm thinking, why is Thor in this?
0: They clearly gave him like a fake nose. They They made him look more ugly because I guess they felt like if he just came in. Know, is that possible? I, I don't know. I mean, they, you know, it's it's a really big kind of protuberance and it definitely, <laughs> it, it definitely uh, disrupts the usual Chris Hemsworth look. So I guess they maybe they went with that so that people kind of see him more as a villain. Maybe. I mean,
1: maybe there's a correlation between Oscar attention and big noses, like
0: Bradley Cooper's. <laughs> yeah, like with my yeah, show. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I don't know. I really liked uh the Mad Max character in Fury Road. Yeah. Even though I thought he was very different from Mel Gibson. And so I kind of wish he was in this. I know this is like a spin-off and it focuses on Furiosa and you could argue that Fury Road is about Furiosa. But Anya Taylor-Joy doesn't give me the same sort of intense feeling
0: as Charlize Theron. I mean, I feel like she could she could get there, but I, I you know, the movie I'm gonna have to see the movie essentially to, to really decide on that.
1: Yeah. And to your point, I think in that universe there's no real hero or villain. Everyone's kind of like an anti-hero, except maybe Immortan Joe. Yeah, he's a straight-up villain who's yeah. clearly yeah, who's clearly evil. Um, but I do think there's gonna be some switching sides, switching allegiances, a love triangle. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with like Immortan Joe and Thor vying for Furiosa's attention somehow. Possibly, someway. yeah. Yeah. And uh I'm cautiously optimistic.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh George Miller is is to be trusted as uh you know, the he is he? He prevailed through all of Fury Road. And like if you read like you were saying, if you read about the behind the scenes uh experiences uh on that movie, like yeah he had the movie in his head constantly and it might have caused tension with the actors like uh, Tom Hardy and Charlie Theron were often at their wits end trying to understand what he was doing but eventually he delivered on it you know he he defied all expectations and multiple attempts to shut down the movie because you know he he, uh, he knew what he was making but I don't know what to make a George Miller, because he does Fury Road
1: and Happy Feet. And I can't think of two more opposite movies. And I don't know what his niche, I don't know what his trademark is. (laughs) He's almost like a director for hire, where you hire him to do anything that you would possibly want. And he'll probably do a a good job of it, but he doesn't have a trademark like a Spielberg or Ridley Scott or someone of that ilk, or even a Chris Nolan, where it's very their style and plot and characters are very specific to that director
0: yeah i mean i think if you had to pick a trademark for him it would be the mad max franchise because that was the first thing he ever directed and the thing that he's consistently worked on through his whole career and that but you're right you know some of those other divergent things like happy feet or uh, uh, the babe movie um are are kind of weird uh, (laughs) i
1: forgot he did babe
0: (laughs) yeah um that they are they're very tonally different and uh, so like maybe maybe he is more of a director for hire on those things than he is in mad max and like everything he does that's not mad max is just him trying to um finance more mad max no that's fair that's fair
1: we shall see this could further anya taylor joy's career which has which had been really hot or it could just maybe stop dead in its tracks uh but
0: should we get started with the rest of the episode sure
1: Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's a show about movies, TV, anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show!
0: Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast, episode one hundred and twenty-one. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto, and I'm joined by Jason Chen in Vancouver. Hello, hello. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something.
1: A little bit late yeah. I mean, sorry, not on my A game right now, but it'll get better. I trust. It's me. Sunday
0: morning right now in uh, in Vancouver, so Jason's still waking up. Um, I d- I did have a late night. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, this time on the episode, we're going to be talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, the latest from Martin Scorsese, as well as Ridley Scott's Napoleon, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers, The Marvels, and The Killer. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Five movies. We're doing, As usual, we're doing some catch-up over the past couple of months worth of movie watching, but uh, stick with us. You know, there's there's a lot to get through. <laughs> um, please listen to our show, please. So Killers of the Flower Moon is first up. And this is a movie that, uh, I mean, it's funny to compare this actually to Napoleon because uh, uh, Ridley Scott, when he's doing press for his movies, he loves to shit talk people. And <laughs> whether it's like historians who are calling him out for the accuracy of his movies or uh, people who... who um, you know, doubt him at his advanced age as a director, yeah. he's, he's got sharp words for everybody. And he even had some sharp words for Martin Scorsese because, uh, you know, they're both of similar ages, but he was essentially dunking on, on Scorsese by saying like, look, Scorsese took, uh, the better part of, uh, six or seven years to get killers of the flower moon made and released. And in that space, space of time, I've made three or four movies. um, <laughs> But they're obviously very different directors and like the different styles of working. Um, Scorsese is famous for, you know, uh, attention to detail. And he may not do as many takes as someone like a David Fincher, who we'll talk about later. But, um, you know, when he does make a movie there, you can tell that there's a lot of care that goes into it. Um, And Killers of the Flower Moon is no exception. Well, we mix these families together, and that estate money flows the right direction. It'll come to us. That's how you are. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie that uh, we've been waiting for for a number of years, delayed a little bit by COVID, but now it reaches us the story of a sequence of deaths and murders happening on uh, within the Osage Nation in Oklahoma in uh, the period after the First World War all tied to the oil wealth that uh, the indigenous people, the Osage uh, people uh, had come into as a result of oil being discovered on their land in Oklahoma. And all of the white people who came to this part of of the United States and were sort of greedily eyeing all of the wealth that these people were accumulating and trying to use various skullduggery to uh, get access to the title on these oil wells, marrying into indigenous families, trying to basically getting control of family money by marrying into these families and then seeing to it that anyone else who might inherit that money gets killed off. So very, very spooky stuff that obviously has had ripple effects in the United States for generations afterwards. But what did you think of this? This is a lot of a lot of talk in this one, uh, about this one with regard to its length. Um, but the performance is being really strong. Did you pick up on any of that? The length was okay. Um, I was very cautious because this was like
1: three hours and 26 minutes, I believe. And you factor in commercials and all that, it's a four-hour block of your day just gone.
0: Yeah, something like that. And I was very
1: cognizant of that and it it took me a while to find the actual time (laughs) of the day to actually go see this movie. But I'm glad I saw it. Um, The acting was good. I don't think this is DiCaprio's best work, but I do think he has made a habit of playing really broken white men. (laughs) I actually thought it was really interesting. It wasn't a straightforward biographical movie like I thought it would Mm, be. There's some title cards in there. There's some like sequences in there that are very much more about emotion rather than the story or the dialogue. Uh, The production value is incredible. I loved it. there are certain parts that I had to catch on and I do think if you go in with a better knowledge of the history of the events and like the area I think you probably catch on a little faster Mm -hmm. like for the first half hour or so I had to well it didn't hit me until a little later that uh, when these First Nations when the Osage applied
0: to get money from the government for the oil they had to go through a white person to do that yes yeah, they were like some of them were uh declared incompetent by uh by the uh the government and so they had to basically go into an office and say I am an incompetent but I need money for this that and the other thing and then it would be up to this white guy to determine whether their claim was uh legit. Um I don't think that was the case for everybody, but it was the case for um, the one of the main women um, played by um, Lily Gladstone. Lily Gladstone, yeah. Who is she? Is the she's the she's the main character, the main character of the film uh, who ends up married to Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Yeah, and I think the one thing I really appreciate in this film is that there's no
1: like sniveling villain. Mm. Yeah, you could have easily had those because some of the characters are actually caricatures yeah um some of the hitmen they hire some of the hicks that they deal with and some of the people who like mastermind this plot to kill all these first nations families and steal their money and whatnot it could have easily devolved into that and at certain points like i think it toes that line Mm -hmm. but for the most part
0: every character is fully formed and realized and i appreciate that with regard to the length like this is a story that spans something like 20, 30 years at least, um, depending on where you kind of draw the boundaries. And so, you know, you, you can make the argument that the movie kind of needs to be long in order to fairly incorporate all of the details and give you a sense of just how widespread this plot by the white people was and how many people died as a result of it. Um, because you have probably the most villainous character in the film, uh, played by Robert De Niro, this guy, uh, King, who, uh, you know, he... He's unscrupulous. No, yeah, no scruples at all. He'll, you know, he introduces himself. He's like, hey, call me King. And, uh, you know, he, he sees himself as this benevolent character who uh, claims to like the Osage, but the more time goes by the more you realize like no he really just sees the osage as a source of of money that he can exploit that he can manipulate um while putting off the um the auspices of being a benevolent community leader um so he's very very crafty but and very self assured you know he he doesn't think that the even when the fbi or the 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 nascent FBI, because this is very much the beginning of the existence of that that agency. Um, even when the FBI starts investigating, he doesn't. He's not scared at all. He thinks that he can weasel out of it without too much trouble. Um, so, by the end of it, you are very much rooting to see, see him taken down a peg. Um, and then there's this final scene that uh, lays out what happens to all the characters in the, the decades afterwards. And you're, you you th- end up thinking, oh, geez, you know, a few of them got a, uh, got uh, punished a little bit, but it didn't really uh, stick. So, Well, I mean, typical history, right? Like people, those in power just get away with it
1: for the most yes. part. Yes. Right? Yeah.
0: So it's not like there's a, a truly happy ending by any means. I
1: did like that scene, though, the way they ended it. How they basically turned into radio play. Yeah, I thought that was very clever. Um, There are a couple movies who did that as well. Do you remember The Warriors? Uh, It's that like cult film about street gangs from like...
0: Oh, I I never saw that one. Oh,
1: okay. There's a woman who does a radio broadcast and she kind of narrates the film as it goes along. And it really reminded me of that. Maybe it's just the color red. Maybe it's just the, I don't know, the aesthetic. I'm not sure. I was going to say though, for, for a movie that's three and a half hours... You don't really feel it. I've been in
0: movies that felt longer.
1: Yeah, it's kind of flat, but I do feel that you're always invested in it because there's always something interesting going on. It just really takes its time getting there, but you're never bored. Yeah. There's no highs or lows. There's no like big scene, big blow-up scene or anything like that. Everything's just a bit of a slow burn. There there's a bit of a high and a low, but it never gets too high or too low. And uh but I am glad that when the movie finishes, um like, I, it was nice to get up and stretch my legs.
0: Yeah. I mean, it didn't work for everybody because I, I vividly remember coming out of my screening of it and there was somebody who was uh, seated, you know, elsewhere in the theater who was talking to his friends and he was like, God, that was awful. So long. I can't believe it's one of the worst things I've ever seen, he said. Really? That's interesting. I had people clap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think it's it's more divisive than uh, than you might expect from a Scorsese film, and um, and I guess for some people it just boils down to like they if their attention span is too short or if uh, they're not kind of latching onto the um, the drama of this situation, they for them the the time is just like ticking by really slowly and they just can't wait to be out of there. So yeah, um, it's not a not a surefire winner for everyone. It reminded me of The Irishman. Very
1: divisive, uh long runtime. But when I was watching The Irishman, I never got bored. I had to take a break in between. Sure, but yeah. I was never bored. Yeah.
0: And I mean like Scorsese will uh has been quizzed about this too. And he he says like, Well, you know, people will happily sit down and binge four hours of TV on a Saturday night, so why can't they do this? And that's interesting he said that because the thing with TV is that every
1: episode has a big climax or cliffhanger. Yes. Yeah. And that's what keeps you going because you want to know what happens next. Yes. With the Osage County, the the killers of Flower Moon, it's kind of, you already kind of know what's going to happen. You just don't know how it's going to get there. Yeah. And you also just wonder what happens to each of the characters. But as you said, none of them really suffer any real consequences except for a few people. The humor was a little, it, it was nice to break up the tone a little bit, but it was also a little much sometimes. Yeah. Like I said, sometimes the caricatures
0: become a little too much. Like the the dumb characters become too dumb. Yeah, like you, <laughs> people have made fun of Leo's uh, performance in this to an extent because uh he feels like he's kind of making this like fish face for a lot of the, the he is, like yeah. he's kind of like his mouth is kind of pursed and he's like you know um he had this he's his brow is always furrow. yeah and he like this look of like non-comprehension as uh the smarter villains kind of use him to get to the money that uh lily gladstone's character has um like i said not his best work in my opinion I don't know. I mean, it's it's up there for me. I I would definitely place it in maybe like top five performances for him. But he's not playing the kind of character who jumps off the screen. He's it's a little bit more of a you know you, you compare it to like his role in uh, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like that was a very obvious like lots of really really big moments in that where that that stick in your memory. Whereas this, he's kind of got to be he's got to be the the unsuspecting type, the the kind of guy who can lull lily gladstone's character into a uh false sense of security because he doesn't seem like he's capable of the sort of um crimes that he ends up perpetrating i actually thought the best performer was de niro yeah he's really good yeah a little return to
1: form he doesn't have to be mean anymore but he definitely has a presence because he's playing a like uh a version of a mob boss
0: really yeah without the kind of the trappings of like the italian mafia but yeah like yeah uh,
1: yeah no silk suits correct yeah yeah um but i thought he was really good lily gladstone was good um i might have to watch it again just to see because i do find her a little too stoic sometimes and as you said leo dicaprio has that face and it just it it, kind of rubs me the wrong way after three hours it's kind of like is is it like a twitch or is it a feature or is it like you're trying to overact a little yeah what
0: did you think of when de niro had to spank dicaprio I thought it was hilarious.
1: Yeah. Also a little, that's one scene where I thought lo- was really off because I thought spanking was just a really childish way of punishing someone. And and the implication was that De Niro or King was part of this secret society or higher society that they never really
0: delve into. Yeah. Well, they, they have it staged at like, what is it? Like a Masonic temple or something. Yeah. 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 Um, so i guess they and and from what i know that is true like i believe he was involved with the freemasons at some point no i don't know anything about the rituals that the masons might have had back in the 1920s or whatever but so well me neither but i just thought the association was historically active. oh okay yeah but i i mean maybe spanking was done as a as a way of punishing people back then in that group but um uh yeah all i know about it is that apparently the the cinematographer um was surprised with how much gusto de Niro put into the spanking so but they yeah, apparently
1: he actually spanked
0: DiCaprio yeah but they put pads in Di- in DiCaprio's pants so that he didn't have to really take the full uh, brunt of it I'm um, not sure this is a top five DiCaprio performance
1: because I think he was way way better in Wolf of Wall Street and I think he was way way better in Blood Diamond
0: I see I don't with Blood Diamond
1: I and I and, I, and also I think he was better in that Mary the Revenant. Oh, the Revenant. Tom yeah. Hardy.
0: Uh, the Revenant.
1: See, Blood Diamonds, yeah. and he's done some stuff earlier in his in his career that's also really quite good, like when he was a boy, basically. But
0: yeah, but see, for me, Blood Diamond doesn't rank very high because the South African accent gets on my nerves. Really, I've heard, I've read that it's actually very good. Oh, okay. And fr- maybe it's just that I just don't see him as being South African, so like I know he. Oh, really? Like, I find he's pretty
1: convincing. Okay. I can't get
0: immersed in it, but whatever. Uh, it's been a long time since I saw that movie, okay. so who knows? The Wolf
1: of Wall Street, that's perfect
0: for him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's career topping for sure. Um, so what are we thinking for Oscar chances for this one? Is it uh, because the last, when was it? Screenplay for sure. Screenplay. Um, Lily Austin Gladstone design. for actor, best actor.
1: I thought she was being entered as supporting. She's
0: supporting? that. Uh, that's kind of. Uh, well, because a- it's political, right? Like, it's easier to, to win. Right. But that's that feels like a snub uh, from the production company, if that's the case, because she's, like, the main person. Yeah, she was uh, Independence. Oh, no, that's not uh, Best Actress.
1: Okay, you might be right. Yeah, I-, I-, I can see her being Best Actress, for sure. I think that makes a lot of sense.
0: Apparently, she was going to quit. Acting, yeah. She was gonna like a study for some like computer science or some other field, and then she got a call from or an email from Scorsese asking uh, asking her to audition. So DiCaprio for one of the acting
1: categories, and De Niro, De Niro as well. I think they probably enter in separate categories with De Niro getting supporting. Yeah, just to spread it out. Um, costume design, production design, yeah, most likely. Um, screenplay, all the major ones for sure. I think editing would be an interesting one. But editing's tough to t- say sometimes, but I do like how it's edited.
0: Yeah, and it, like more than a few critics pointed out that they you know, like you were saying they it's a bit different for Scorsese with the editing like it is. um yeah. there's more moments of like subjectivity and spirituality. Yeah.
1: There's a little more brevity. There it, it's it's less um straightforward than some of his previous biographical film mm-hmm. yeah so it doesn't always move linearly and it does jump around from place to place and time yeah. to time but it's easy to
0: catch yeah. on which is uh you know that when you put it up against something like oppenheimer which was also doing that um you will find your like that'll, that'll be a pretty close race to watch i think because there will be people who really think that oppenheimer mastered that sort of keeping everything straight in the flow of time, uh, whereas some people will really like uh, what uh, Killers did. So, I think Oppenheimer was the stronger movie mm, for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I like the subject matter of Oppenheimer. Oh, really? on a Personal okay. level, so I'm more, I'm more, I'm more drawn to that. Um, but yeah, this is still like, you know, one of the best of the year, no question.
1: Yeah, it's up there. I don't know if it's Scorsese's best work, but it's up there. But I do think. I'm the opposite. I thought Killers of the Fire Moon, the subject subject material was more interesting to me, but I thought Oppenheimer was just better executed and more um, I was emos- more emotionally invested in it. I thought it was the better dramatic piece.
0: Well, uh, staying on the historical movie side of things, should we hear from you about Napoleon? Move
1: along now. Those in power only see me as a brute,
0: unfit for higher office. But I follow in the footsteps of Alexander the Great and Caesar. Evil minds that plot destruction. If you look down, you'll see a
1: surprise.
0: Once you see it,
1: you will always want to. Sorcerer of death construction. So we know, you know how we talked about Killers of Flower Moon being three and a half hours and not feeling boring? Yeah. Napoleon feels boring. <laughs> and it's like an hour shorter. I know. And it felt like it was three hours. There were, There was a good five or ten minute stretch where I really wandered off and dozed. <laughs> dozed off. And this was a very uneven movie for me. Oh. I I think it does kind of show Ridley Scott's age. And I do also think that it shows that Ridley Scott is focused on other things. So if you look at Scorsese's movies there, like the attention to detail, the accuracy, it's all it's all very much there. And I know Ridley Scott was t- You know, criticized for historical inaccuracy. And I have to defend him here a little bit because I don't think you go to see a a historical movie for accuracy. No, no. Like, go read a textbook, man. Exactly. The movie should not be the basis of your education unless you're critiquing film
0: like there's a scene in the trailer for this that a lot of people were latching onto where napoleon is shown firing cannons at one of the great pyramids in egypt and and people were like some historians were like well we don't have any proof that he ever did anything like that all we know is that he conquered egypt and like Ridley scott's uh, point of view is like well you don't know that he didn't do that so i can put it in my movie and you know whatever just Uh, uh, i'll say right off the bat that
1: i i don't think i particularly enjoyed this movie it was fine and this is coming from a big Ridley Scott guy.
0: Oh yeah, you're well. He's one of your all timers, but yeah, yeah, he's one of
1: my all times. So you can see the Ridley Scott in it. Like the action scenes are incredible. Mm-hmm. The camera work is really good. the The dramatic stuff is really dramatic, but it comes in spurts. It comes few and far between. It moves very chronologically, but the way he deals with time is a lot less sophisticated than what Scorsese did with Killers of the Flower Moon, and it ends up being being boring. Right. Part of the big appeal of Napoleon is that we we know he's insecure. We know he's also a tactical genius, but we never really understood what drove him. And that was the one big thing missing from this film. We saw Napoleon's greatest hits. We saw him do all the battles uh, from his first win at the uh, garrison to his final one at Waterloo to him coming back from exile and then after and onwards. And so there's a, Few major set pieces that are really good, but it moves so choppily and it moves so incoherently in the sense that we don't ever understand what drives Napoleon, what he's thinking at the time. I don't think Joaquin Phoenix really understood either. So during production, one of the stories was that Joaquin Phoenix would go to Ridley Scott and be like, I don't know how to act this. I don't know what's going on. And Ridley Scott would re- rewrite the whole thing or they do the whole thing together.
0: I remember talking about that with you and I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Like they must have, yeah, they must have really had a, a moment of inspiration or something.
1: And I think Joaquin Phoenix was onto something. You never find out what drives Napoleon. And I think that's what Joaquin Phoenix uh, struggled with is that he didn't know how to portray this character's arc he doesn't really change the his amount the amount of power he wields changes but what about his character changes and that's the same with vanessa kirby i thought she was really overrated in this movie she didn't have a lot to work with to begin with but i never understood what the appeal was with josephine uh there are a couple lines in there that are just so awkward and out of place and funny you're supposed to revere Napoleon,
0: but you almost come away just laughing at him. And apparently Ridley Scott was questioned about that. And he said, it's okay to laugh at Napoleon. Like some of those more comedic moments are intentional. Right. But why is the rest of the film so serious? Mm. I don't understand that. Like if you look at
1: Gladiator, which I think is like peak, one of peak Ridley Scott films. Sure. Yeah. It is very, very consistent. The character arc is very understandable. There are funny parts, but it doesn't overtake the film and it, it and it's him joking around with his buddies there's scenes in here where him and josephine are talking to each other having a dialogue and it's supposed to be a revealing conversation about their personalities and their motivations right and it just he ends up basically pulling off one-liners and and without knowing it you're laughing at him instead of with him right and and it just cheapens the whole thing so I mean, does Joaquin Phoenix do a good job of acting? Yeah, he is. He's a really good actor. Does it really sh- showcase his his range and his acting chops? I don't think so. Mm. Definitely not with Vanessa Kirby. And there's too many characters just kind of like popping in and out. Uh, there's a lot of political stuff going on that he just kind of assumes you understand. Like, he'll just toss you something and then you're supposed to kind of understand it. But it doesn't breathe because it covers so much ground and it moves so fast sometimes. It's not like Kills of Flower Moon where, like, you get the time to breathe and understand what is going on. Yeah. But but the action sequences are great. The, the, the scene in the trailer where you see where he shoots cannonballs into the ice, that scene is
0: great. I mean, it, it visually looks stunning. That was one thing that i was like, actually excited to see so you know i'm still gonna watch it because i you know i i do love it when he does historical action and yeah um you know the it is a lot more gory than i thought but i mean
1: i should have expected it it's really scott <laughs> yeah we saw dismemberment in galley gladiator of course so.
0: yeah but he is getting old I, I do think he's a bit of a scattermind do you think it suffered at all from like you know like we were talking about in the uh in the beginning, the uh, the way that he is moves so quickly and is working on so many projects concurrently. You know, the, he hasn't he probably has only wrapped shooting one movie when he's already launching into production on another. And uh, you know, he he's able to put out sometimes two movies a year at that pace. I, I do think he's more
1: of a big picture guy. He's he, he's kind of like this is the theme I want. This is the way I want to shoot, it. and we're going to do it. And he's old school right he's not yeah. I, I wouldn't call him a, an, an auteur not in the same level mm, as scorsese no
0: no no yeah that's true
1: i think scorsese for him it really is about the art i think his det- attention detail is better and i also think he showcases that detail a lot better because he allows things to breathe really scott the attention detail is is there but he doesn't let you linger he doesn't let you stay there for more than a few moments yeah he's almost like you said to your point it's almost as if he's already looking ahead to the next thing yeah yeah and i can imagine him being a guy who's just like one two three four five these is the five things we're going to do one is done let's go to two two is done let's go to three yeah we're score like okay here's one two three four five and you know we get to three and maybe we'll go back and change one depending on how three goes maybe we'll skip four and go to five we'll Different lengths, we'll see it, we'll play it by year. Yeah. But I don't think that's how really Scott works. Um, I do encourage you to see it. I think it's overrated. I think it'll get nominated for certain awards like production and sure. Walking Phoenix for me for actor. And we'll see how Vanessa Kirby does, but I don't expect it to win anything.
0: Yeah. It'll be in the conversation, but not uh, not really winning any trophies. Um that's all right though. Uh, Well, uh, also in like kind of historical, not that far in the past, but zooming forward to the 1970s, we have The Holdovers Mm. from Alexander Payne. Every year at Barton
1: Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as The Holdovers.
0: So this was something that I was excited to see because uh, they'd been placing the trailer in front of a lot of stuff that I had been going to see in theaters over the past few months. And it had been a while since uh, we'd seen anything from Alexander Payne. Of course, he's best known for movies like Election, Sideways, mm-hmm. Nebraska, The Descendants, not all in chronological order. Those are just how they're popping into my head. But anyway, um, very, very much uh, beloved in the indie film world, uh, known for comedy and uh, wry observations about humanity and that kind of stuff. And um, so this is a film set in 1970 in a uh, upscale prep school around Christmas time, and Paul Giamatti, who was uh, Alexander Payne's leading man for Sideways in 2004, reteams with him again for the first time in like 19 years, and mm-hmm. uh, plays a classics professor at this prep school uh, who has been living and working at the campus for his entire career. And he's just part of the furniture. He's this crusty old guy who teaches ancient civilizations to these, uh, you know, boys of different ages and none of the students like him. None of the faculty like him. Sounds
1: like a Paul Giamatti movie. (laughs) (laughs) He's really good at playing Uh, unlikable or dislike characters.
0: Exactly. And, uh, When we meet the character, we don't immediately know, of course, why no one likes him or why he's so abrasive to everyone around him. But that's sort of the point of the movie is kind of peeling back the layers of the onion, kind of revealing how this guy got to be who he is. Um, And the the action of the movie kicks off when Uh, The Christmas holidays are coming up, and almost everyone in the school, teachers and students alike, are all going back to their families to spend the holidays together. But there's a small group of boys uh, who have been left to stay there over the holidays because their families have gone off on trips or otherwise can't reunite with them. And it falls to Paul Giamatti's character to be the one teacher who stays behind to look after these boys, and they are the holdovers of the title. At first, there's a a group of uh, four or five boys, but then there's a bit of a deus ex machina moment, and majority of the boys get spirited away. And so it's just down to Paul Giamatti um, and then this one uh, teenager uh, played by a a, uh, new actor who I hadn't seen in anything before. I think it might even be his first role, uh, Dominic Sessa. And the two of them are stuck in the infirmary of the school because the rest of the the school has been uh you know all the heating's been shut down to save money so they have to stay in the infirmary and they they're having their meals made for them by this black woman whose young son had just been uh, killed in vietnam so she comes into the story you know in a more of a service role but she's got her own backstory and her own reasons for being um feeling isolated over christmas and so the three of them you know, over the course of the movie, they end up getting uh, closer. They end up understanding each other to an extent. Uh, they get into some misadventures. And by the end of it, it just ends up being this this rather heartwarming kind of tale that, um, you know, with some really solid performances and. It doesn't have any big ambitions or anything like that but it's a it's a sort of movie that we don't see all that often anymore you know with the these sorts of actors telling this kind of story and uh, i had a really great time i thought it was it was very nicely put together and uh, um, i've been recommending it to a lot of people because it's uh you know it's it doesn't fit into a particular genre or anything but uh, yeah really solidly done a little
1: return to form for alexander payne he'd been quiet for a while Okay, so so the thing with Alexander Payne's movie is that his characters, all of them go through some, like, deep, deep, deep trauma. (laughs) Is it the same here, where, like, Giamatti and the the student bond together because they've somehow went through the similar type of
0: drama unbeknownst to each other until that one moment where they pour their hearts out? Yeah. So the the movie is constructed in such a way that you get glimpses into that trauma as uh, different events happen, because the characters aren't, you know, no, no person is going to just sit right down and tell you everything that went wrong in their life all in one, one go. So it's spaced out a little bit. And that's good because, you know, it, you um you get moments of levity that kind of like balance out some of the. um uh the the more depressing moments from these guys lives paul giamatti's character is like a uh a failed academic essentially like he He always plays these characters yeah like he he had been a a student at yale or harvard or or something like that uh, who had been you know on a track to um to achieve a whole lot as a uh uh you know, a classics guy, but then he gets into a run in to do with plagiarism with a fellow student and he gets blamed for for something he didn't do and that ruins his academic career. So the only thing that he can think to do is to go back to the prep school that he had finished high school at and become a teacher there and he therefore becomes part of the furniture. And, um, you know, he has all of unfortunately, he has a few medical conditions that cause him to be even more uh, loathsome. So he has like a a thing that it causes him to smell like fish over the course of the day. Um, some Like his body doesn't break.
1: <laughs> That's such an Alexander Payne thing.
0: Yeah, so his body doesn't... Just like really obscure. Yeah, exactly. Um, he ha- he has a uh, lazy eye that kind of drifts off to one side. So all of the... I have that. <laughs> <laughs> but so but that combined with the smell of fish means that uh, all of the students call him walleye. Um, so... Things like that. Um, meanwhile, the uh, the teenager played by Dominic Sessa is, um, you know, his his parents are obviously very wealthy, but very, uh, you know, out to lunch. They don't really care about him all that much. They're more interested in going off on a honeymoon together than, um, uh, than in having him over for Christmas. And so that drives his sense of abandonment. And he's already been kicked out of three schools. He's a danger of getting kicked out of this one. So it falls to Paul Giamatti's character to try to encourage him to... Uh, clean up his act a little bit and um, take things seriously, and not uh, not just assume that he's trash. So classic Paul Giamatti character where you think he's a dick, but he's really not. Yeah, yeah. The the, the kind of like I said, peeling back the layers, kind of finding the the warm heart in the middle of it. Um, so yeah, and the fact that it's set around Christmas, obviously, and it's coming out around Christmas, um, definitely. Adds to the, the the sense of like oh okay this is like a more more of a holiday movie but it's got a bit of a bitter taste to it, um, which makes it so that it doesn't feel too uh, too saccharine. So oh
1: okay so it doesn't have a happy ending.
0: It usually it does. Okay it yeah because usually these like,
1: films have an ending where like it works out for everyone. Somehow. Or like people come to terms with what they are and what happened.
0: I would say it's the latter. So it's not, um, you know, it's not a bad, it's not a sad ending, but it's also not overwhelmingly happy. There's, there are consequences for certain things and, um, you know, sacrifices are made, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Okay. So fairly typical Alexander Payne movie, but he's, he executes it well. Exactly if you like Alexander Payne's movies you'll you'll definitely be at home with the holdovers. The holdovers
1: feels like a movie that was straight from like a really good 90s cable TV movie. Does that
0: jive? I guess so yeah. I mean in the sense that it's a you know it's a small scale drama made for adults kind of thing. so
1: yeah, yeah, this is the type of movie that I feel like doesn't do well in theaters like financially uh, but no, but really great on like a streaming service as a straight to TV kind of movie.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I hope uh, somebody picks it up uh, and uh, gives it a home for that reason. Yeah, I'm sure someone will. Um, but we ask, we also have this sense that straight to TV movies are
1: bad, but that's not the case, right? That's not the case anymore. No,
0: I mean, as long as everyone gets paid, then uh, well, sure. as
1: long as it's well done, right? So,
0: so that that does it for like more history related stuff uh, on this episode. But now we're going to move into more genre type fare. Uh, <laughs> So I was talking to somebody last night who described the Marvels as the worst movie he'd ever seen. (laughs) And I mean, I didn't want I didn't want to get into a whole debate because I uh, Uh, it's just hyperbole. There's loads of movies out there that are the worst ever made. Like, you know, the likes of Tommy Wiseau and Neil Breen, et cetera, et cetera. But um, but the Marvels is probably the worst Marvel movie of all time. uh, If you believe the headlines right now, are you in that camp or are you a little bit more forgiving of it? It is definitely not the worst movie I've ever seen. Um,
1: I think that's hyperbole. It is also just not very good. <laughs> Actually, not, it's just not, not very good. It's not good. What are you prepared to do? I'm repensible. Your powers only make me stronger. So you can't be matched. You can't be controlled. I walked in this movie because it's less than two hours of runtime. And I figured, finally. Like a short to the point superhero movie mm. where you know I don't have to spend a lot of time thinking. Yeah. Unlike you know, Napoleon, I walked out of the Marvels wishing it was longer. Mm. I understand why Marvel needs to have two and a half hour runtimes because there's a lot of backstory. And I have to say for half the movie, I had no idea what was going on because I didn't necessarily finish the TV shows Mm -hmm. or like followed all like the extracurricular stuff that they had going on. Right. I think tonally, it's a mess. I think the characters are very uninteresting unless they're together. The script is just isn't very good. And (laughs) the conflict isn't interesting. Um what what the characters need to do to accomplish their goal wasn't always very clear to start with. And then it it's too bad because I do think the casting is, is good. So like between the three leads, Tayona Paris, Brie Larson,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Iman Valani, I think they're all good and I think the chemistry is there. A little too much visual effects for my liking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, things move too much. It doesn't breed. Like from some point, there's at one point they're stuck in space and then they they're, at another point they're trying to evacuate a whole planet. And then at another point, they're at a planet where the only way to communicate is through song and dance, which is what you see in the trailers. I heard about that. Um, yeah, there's some sort of inside joke about Captain Marvel being married, which I thought was really dumb and stupid.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: they explain. They try to explain a lot of things that went on during the blip, like why wasn't Captain Marvel and this and that, and what happened to this character, and, and right. Uh, I mean, unless you watch Captain Marvel and Miss Marvel, the shows right before, I find it really hard to follow. There's supposed to be a big emotional reunion between Teonas Paris's character and Brie Larson. It doesn't hit the right notes. Um, there's a lack of weight in that scene and in that buildup. And I think it's really unfortunate because I know Brie Larson gets a lot of internet hate. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's her fault at all. No. And I, I don't believe that Bob Iger... Uh, that COVID was a reason that this was a failure because there was no one to supervise the movie. I, I Is that what he said? I, I believe so, yeah. He said the <laughs> failures of this movie was because there, it was filmed during COVID and we were basically short on everything and we didn't have anyone to oversee the entire project on set. And I feel like, you know what? That's actually a good thing you didn't have anyone on set to supervise the whole thing. Yeah,
0: because I... Well, I don't believe that for a second because, I mean, that's the job of the director, so... If, um, yeah, and
1: and there was some some like some controversy about how this director had like signed on and started doing another project while this movie was being finished. Yes, I heard but about I, that. I I don't think that's a big deal. I think like once you're done filming, sure move on. Like yeah, it, it, I don't think that means you're not invested or you don't like the project that you just finished.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I definitely don't think the start the problem start with the director.
0: Well, no, as you said, it's like the the script and the the assumption that the film seems to have that uh you are 100% caught up on all of the goings on of these characters and other things and you know i think audiences are relatively forgiving of that for the most part for these sorts of big franchise things because god knows you know there was enough people that turned out to see Endgame who could follow everything that had come come before that but um and i i think i, I did want this movie to i be i good. think people have um they have a certain amount of patience for that, but maybe it sounds like to me the flaw comes with density. So, you know, if you can, you can have one or two movies coming out per year. If you're a big enough fan of Marvel, you can watch each one of those without too much trouble and stay on top of the story. And then, but if you're being expected to watch 20 hours of TV on top of that, it starts to get a little tricky and not everyone can keep up. And then you find yourself in this situation. Yeah, and not everything's interesting. I walked in thinking this will be a quick, two under
1: two hour, you know, fun adventure. No, I wanted more um, in terms of backstory. Marvel's got a big problem right now because none of the stuff they do is is interesting uh, anymore. Uh, part of its saturation, part of its lack of quality, part of it is definitely not lack of effort, but definitely I feel like they're emphasizing the wrong things. I think they've really become cookie-cutter, money-printing machines. And I don't believe...
0: Somewhere along the line, they mm. got lost. And, like, if it's... Um, there's been lots of articles written about this, you know, whether blaming the TV shows or blaming Kevin Feige for being spread too thin. <laughs> well, Jonathan Majors is a big problem, too. The, the fact that they had to set up a
1: villain and have... And it's been such a rocky road so far.
0: And I think, you know... Uh, Uh, Any audience, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with superheroes or westerns or or whatever the genre is. Like you're going to have you're going to have like diminishing returns in terms of like connecting to the audience over time because everyone will have a different every individual audience member will have a different point where they're like, you know what, I've seen enough of these now. It doesn't hold my interest.
1: How interesting is Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, all these people compared to like the Haley Steinfeld Hawkeye? To Miss Marvel, to the Young Avengers, which whatever team that might be, you know, it, it, they're not very compelling. And they're not very interesting.
0: Yeah, Are they, is there a sense that, like, you know, with with Tony Stark, for example, you know, he is the the billionaire philanthropist playboy. He has an edge to him. You know, Steve Rogers is the perfect counterpoint to him because he is raw, raw pro America, doing the right thing no matter what. Um, You've got Bruce Banner as, uh, you know, the scientist with his dark side, Jekyll and Hyde situation. Um, T'Challa, who has uh, the weight of this whole kingdom riding upon him while also being a superhero that saves the world. There's there's some, you know, tension in all of these characters. And I wonder if maybe they haven't found the tension or the the opposing force with the three leads in this movie. You know, with Brie Larson's character, she is uh, presented as being fantastically powerful. She can punch through an entire spaceship and be completely fine. Um, and you know, what is the what is the tension left there? Just does the movie get into that? Like, is there anything she's uh, going up against? The growth of each superhero is not necessarily made clear,
1: and what drives them is not necessarily made clear. Uh, that's why season two Loki is quite good because it really completes Loki's arc and I I do encourage people to watch mm, that. Okay. Even though it's a little uneven at times, um I think it's very well done. Even if the Marvels came out on streaming, I just skip it. Like this might sound harsh, but I don't find many redeeming qualities about it. So then in your opinion, what
0: should Marvel do next?
1: Not bring back Iron Man and Captain America like they said it would. <laughs> like that's just a desperate move that that would make me even more tired of the marvel franchise
0: yeah because if there's one thing that people are very sensitive to it's when the stakes are lowered on something and we, we you know we are told when chris evans retired from this franchise that he was done and he keeps getting asked about it, and he keeps saying, "No, I'm done." And Robert Downey Jr. has said, "I'm done," and but maybe he might return, or I don't well, know. Well, maybe for and the then, money. Then, like, <laughs> for the money, you know, he's you know, he's a little bit uh, just like the character he plays in the movie. You know, there's a sense of like, you know, the wheels can be greased a little bit with enough uh, enough motivation, but <laughs> so he can make Doctor Doolittle too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but the. The the I think people would be not everyone, obviously, because there's some there's plenty of people who go to see these movies who don't think in those terms about, you know, being cheated out of a, a significant death or whatever. You know, they don't engage with the movie on that front, but they're the some of the fans will be very insulted that, you know, they they were encouraged to care about a particular character dying only to have the death reversed for the sake of more movies. And yeah. I mean, that's a very comic book thing, but I don't think you can do that in movies
1: like move on, go, go move on to something else. I do think they need to rethink the Kang storyline. I think their next chance at redemption is the fantastic Four and X-Men. Series.
0: Yeah. So I know that,
1: um, cause those are like well-known properties and, and they need to do well with those. Yeah.
0: And I know that they they have Deadpool three in production right now. Um, maybe he... I, I count that as like i know that's part of ncu
1: but i feel like that's also just separate because it's so different from the rest yes. and um... and and we need to stop all this multiverse stuff like it's it's getting a bit much and i know they're kind of at the point of no return but i'm just not looking forward to versions of all these characters being melded into one like why does everything need to be part of the same universe and anyway? yeah
0: And I know that they brought in uh, Kelsey Grammer uh, as the Brian Singer beast. um, Oh, I completely forgot about that. As a cameo. So, like, you know, they're obviously... They're making a gesture towards, you know, incorporating that era of the X-Men into this continuity. Obviously, it's, like, a different dimension or whatever. But um, so they're, you know, they're obviously saying, like, Fantastic Four is... We're working on that. We're trying to come up with the right way of doing it. But The question is... Do those characters cross over with the Marvel characters that we know, or is it an entirely different, as you say, fraction of the uh, the multiverse? So, Kelsey Grammer's makeup in X-Men 3, when he was playing the Beast,
1: really good. I thought it was really well done. I thought that was a really good casting. He looks computer generated in this cameo. <laughs> okay. And, but I do think it's one of the better end credit scenes. No. like as a tease, I think it's way better than whatever we've had before because it confirms that the X-Men are coming back and um I just wonder where they go with it because I I I mean on a personal level I really love the X-Men so
0: right yeah and the you know obviously they had Patrick Stewart return in a different dimension um only in, to kill him off which is hilarious only to kill him off you know it's just um but and they had John Krasinski playing uh, Mister Fantastic in the, that same scene. So, you know, they 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 keep teasing people with it. They keep saying like, "Look, hey, you know, this is why we bought 20th Century Fox so that we could put these characters you love into this universe."
1: Yeah, and they did cast Fantastic Four already. So,
0: oh, did they? Who did they get for the the main the main character? Apparently,
1: it's Pedro Pascal, is Mister Fantastic.
0: Oh, okay. Hmm.
1: I I don't remember off the top of my head the cast. But I do know that it's, I think, pretty much cast. I know Vanessa Kirby might be Sue Storm. Hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that makes sense.
1: So, I mean, they still have a ton of pull in terms of, like, getting, you know, top-notch actors and right people for the job. It's just the overarching sort of overseer and overarching um, journey that these heroes go on to. And then, like, the big baddie at the end, they need to figure that out.
0: Well, we will see. But uh, so for the final uh, topic of, of this episode, um, I'm going to talk about David Fincher and the killer. This is what it takes. My process is purely logistical. If I'm effective, it's because of one simple fact. I am. Don't give a. Um, David Fincher is teaming up with Netflix again, uh, as he did with Mank, his last film. And you know, David Fincher actually, David Fincher's relationship with Netflix precedes even that because he was the one who brought House of Cards to Netflix and kind of uh, kickstarted Netflix into the company that it is today. So um, yeah, the, the long relationship there. But The Killer is an interesting movie because it feels – compared to Mank, it feels a little bit scaled down, a little bit – not inconsequential, but like it it feels like the kind of movie that they – that if it were not made by David Fincher, it could easily be made by any other director. Um, Oh, really? eh? That's interesting. It has his attention to detail, but the – the scope of it and the premise are not tremendously um, expansive or um, significant, I guess you could say. I really liked it. I thought it was incredibly well done, well executed. Michael Fassbender is very good in it, but um, it doesn't have the kind of like set pieces or um, really memorable moments that will stick with you a long time after you watch it. Not like not like some of other some of Fincher's other movies. And I mean, I'd have to watch it a second time to know for sure. But um, it doesn't it doesn't rank super high up there on my favorites by him. Um, but like I said, still very well executed. Pardon the pun. <laughs> um, tonally, like, what is it like? Tonally, it is. It's got more comedy in it than you'd expect from something about a international hitman. Okay, Um, because Michael Fassbender plays a guy who when we're introduced to him, you know, he's talking a lot in voiceover, um, using a lot of cliches in his dialogue to describe his process and how uh, efficient he is, how excellent he is at his job, how expensive his rates are, all of these things and how he keeps his heart rate down below 60 beats per minute so that he can pull off the perfect uh, sniper shot and all of these things. Um, So they. You know, they spend all of this time convincing you that he is the top of his field. But then he goes to take a shot against a target through a window in a Paris apartment, and he misses. And he reacts to this by saying, fuck. And then he runs down to his um, scooter, zips away into the night, covering his tracks. But throughout the rest of the film, you keep seeing evidence of how skilled he was up until this the point of this big mistake but how often all of his coaching that he does on voiceover all of the talk about his process he's not really following (laughs) it's just empty words he's bad
1: at his job
0: yeah and you're wondering like oh okay so there's there's an aspect of black comedy to this where like you know he says things like don't improvise Plan everything carefully, but then you'll see him improvising because things won't go his way in a particular moment, and he'll have to do something kind of uh, reckless to get out of a situation. You're like, oh, okay, so whatever you were saying in voiceover a second ago, you're not really listening to. So, can we? It's a bit of an unreliable narrator situation. Um, And yeah, there's no no real growth in his character. Uh, We've been talking about you know characters' growth a lot in this episode. There's no real growth. His his main motivation is just to stay alive and to get revenge for a, an assault that's per, uh, perpetrated against uh, his girlfriend, um, as uh, she she's assaulted because um, uh, the people that he worked for are trying to punish him for messing up this Paris uh, hit, and he just crisscrosses the globe looking for the perpetrators, and you know very. Ah, uh, trying to eliminate them one by one. And you learn shockingly little about him uh, as time goes by, other than the fact that he's a kind of a hypocrite.
1: really doesn't sound like a David Fincher film,
0: yeah. so it's it's for that reason that that it feels less like something he would make and something and more like something. I'm trying to think of like another director who would make this, like maybe maybe Doug Lyman. It could be like a Doug Lyman film or something. But well,
1: Doug Lyman, I feel like, has no humor,
0: oh, uh, yeah um
1: but it it
0: strikes me as something like um Guy Ritchie a little bit but like that almost that would be too comedic I think by by comparison like this is this is not funny enough to be a a true Guy Ritchie film but you're right like the, the there's a Guy Ritchie does a blend of comedy and action in a lot of his things um so yeah it's it's a bit of an odd one from David Fincher and um uh, Michael Fassbender, you know, it, it, he hasn't been seen in a while because he's a professional race car driver. When he's uh, he's not uh, being an A-list actor, <laughs> so that's um, whatever. You know, the guys can have hobbies, but uh, what a great hobby, though! Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that matches with the intensity of the people he often plays. So he saw an opportunity to come back and team with David Fincher, and who wouldn't want to work with David Fincher if you've got a uh, the the taste for doing hundred takes of every shot? But um, Works for some people, but not for all for all actors. That's for sure. I would still recommend *The Killer* to a lot of people. Like, it's um, if you enjoy espionage or, or uh, revenge films at all, like the, there's definitely something to like here. Uh, all very exquisitely done. The cinematography, the uh, the blocking is all very carefully considered. Um, but just don't go in expecting something on the tier of like *Social Network* or uh, *The Game* or uh, anything like that, because it's um, uh, it just doesn't have that level of like stick in your mind kind of quality where you're going to be uh, referencing it for you know years to come or anything. It's uh, maybe something that like he felt like he could just sort of fit in as before doing some larger project.
1: It is a bit of a departure, and I'm a little surprised to hear he's doing a film like this. But I mean, you can't always expect the same thing from directors, right? Final scores for the five films we talked
0: about. Uh, final score for Killers of the Flower Moon for me was a four and a half out of five. Why five. Why'd you take the half off? I guess it was just the kind of film that like I can't see myself rewatching super frequently. You know, like something.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's three hours. It's like the Irishman. I, I I haven't rewatched it since.
0: Yeah, like you know something like Oppenheimer. Like we were saying, like Oppenheimer is something where the uh, the subject matter is uh, super. Um, interesting to me personally. So I've already seen the Oppenheimer twice, but I've only seen Killers of Flower Moon once. So for that reason, I can't can't go like, you know, it's an all-timer for me, like full five out of five, but very, very good. You know, like we said, one of the best of the year. Um, Are you uh, four out of five as well on that
1: one? I vacillated between four and four and a half, but I ended up on four. Uh, Then for Napoleon, for you. I gave it three and a half, but I'm almost more leaning towards a three but the production value is really great. So this is one of those things where the story and the characters really aren't well-written, but everything else is quite good. So I ended up with three and a half. I do think Killers from Flower Moon is substantially better than Napoleon, even though there's a half-star difference
0: there, though. And then for the holdovers, for me, I gave that four and a half uh, as well. Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, it's I can't think of anything it does wrong, necessarily, uh, just... Uh, that just instinctively it felt like a four and a half out of five <laughs> okay, okay I no that's as good a reason as any in my opinion
1: sometimes you know you, you shouldn't really put too much thought into it yeah
0: um the marvels
1: uh two out of five that's a solid two i can't get any higher <laughs> i thought about it can do it but probably not lower than that because i appreciate the effort people put in to it but it's just too many bizarre things happen in that movie that don't make any sense to me
0: right And then the killer for me, um, four out of five. So, oh, that's still pretty good. Still pretty good. Like I said, uh, very well executed, you know, is definitely a, a worthwhile use of your time. It just won't be something that will really stick with you. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so for the next episode, uh, we will be, I guess, wrapping up our, um, favorites of the year yeah it'd be end of the year yeah so Probably. we'll have we'll have watched more of december's releases i'm i'm looking forward to uh certainly uh poor things uh, a few others that are coming out this month um so hoping to talk a little bit about that in that episode um because yeah, you know christmas always brings uh, the the final blast of uh, oscar contenders uh so right yeah we'll be talking a little bit about that and then um the uh, january will bring like our uh, our final rankings i guess or oscar preview yeah one of those two yeah <laughs> or both or both yeah whatever whatever we feel like doing you know of course this is it's our podcast this, um but until then my name is robert snow in toronto my name is jason chen in
1: vancouver thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time The Extra Buttery Podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Jason Chen and Robert Snow. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter.